Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Justin Drower, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated, the President and Fellows of Harvard College, and Students for Fair Admissions Incorporated, the University of North Carolina, both of which were argued before the court on October 31st. It's my honor to introduce our panel, Professor Amanda Shanner and Devin Westhill, and our moderator, Kurt Levy. Professor Shanner is Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Devin Westhill is President and General Counsel of the Center for Equal Opportunity, and Kurt Levy is President of the Committee for Justice. And now I'll hand things over to our panel. was a uh, oral argument for the ages, uh, lasted about five hours for two cases. So you can't say the court didn't give this issue the, the time that it deserved. Um, it's, I, I kind of like it. It's, you know, before COVID, it used to be each case gets one hour and it's pretty much a hard cutoff, but I kind of like it this way. Um, you know, other than, than how long the argument went and the fact that O'Connor's reference to the 25-year limit in Grutter was debated, it, you know, my takeaway is that the arguments haven't changed much since um, since Grutter and Gratz were argued. Um, that's that's a case that that uh, me and my colleagues litigated 20 years ago. Uh, that makes me feel uh, very old. Um, for those uh, too young to remember, uh, Gratz and Grutter were lawsuits against uh, University of Michigan's college and law school, respectively. Um, we lost the law school case and won the college case. But, you know, it was mostly a loss because in Grutter, the Supreme Court said the educational benefits of intellectual diversity are a compelling interest that can justify at least a modest, narrowly tailored use of racial preferences and admissions. Um, it replaced the, the less decisive uh, divided opinion in Baki from 25 years before that. And I'll leave it to the speakers to debate, you know, whether the narrow tailoring part is a sort of uh, real or a fiction, um, but for for one, one way or the other, diversity rationale for race-based admissions has become a, a justification for the practice um, ever since. And that's what's at stake today. Although the plaintiffs and courts have focused on the alleged harms done to Asian applicants. This case is really about whether the uh, larger diversity rationale um, survives. You know, although we heard some references to possible remedial justifications for preferences, the school's attorneys uh, disavowed that. They all made clear that they just want uh, Gruder to be uh, upheld. Um, so I'll turn it over now to the speakers to tell us how the uh, diversity rationale uh, fared today. And let's start with Devin. Thank you very much, Kurt. And uh, really appreciate being a part of another Federalist Society program on a really fun topic. Um, as Kurt suggested, this was a marathon of, of arguing, uh, almost five hours. Um, what I want to do, I guess, is just, and there's no, there's absolutely, you know, absolutely no way that we can just cover everything that was, was covered during these arguments. So um, I want to go through uh, each one of the justices um, and discuss what I thought their main interests were um, only briefly. Uh, then I also want to talk about a thread that I think, or threads that run through the UNC case and the Harvard case that uh, seem to be of most interest to court. Um, let me start there, actually. I think the biggest question that the court had for, uh, for the advocates today was, what's the end point here? Um, you know, we're approaching now, and it was uh, 
referenced several times by several of the justices, um, the 25-year termination date um, um, of, of um, the Grutter opinion that uh, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote into the Grutter opinion. Um, what weight does that hold? Um, you know, are we going to see uh, an endpoint at that time? Um, is that an automatic trigger uh, that uh, ends race preferences and, and college admissions? Um, you know, is it even legally, um, um, you know, part of a part of that decision? Um, I think for the most part, the advocates suggested that no, it was just an expectation that the majority put into the opinion. Uh, it's not binding in any way. Um, um, the second sort of really big question, I think, was what are the benefits of a diverse student body? Uh, this was a question that I think Justice Thomas asked um, at least three times of three, three different uh, uh, advocates and uh, got a number of interesting responses. It's something that I've always thought is a, is a difficult question. Um, one of the advocates uh, for North Carolina, North Carolina Solicitor General Ryan Park, suggested the benefits were fivefold. Um, one, a deeper, richer learning environment, richer, more creative thinking among students, greater racial happiness, and harmony. Folks who, are, who uh, go to school in a diverse, uh, racially diverse climate perform at higher level. Uh, he gave an example of uh, stock trading. Um, uh, and, uh, and reduction in groupthink. I don't think any of those go directly to Justice Thomas's question about, you know, how does that help you learn physics better um, or, um, you know, uh, differential equations and, and the like, but uh, those are sort of elements that would go to a, an enriched learning environment, um, which uh, I thought were fairly good answers. Uh, Justice Thomas asked the question of um, uh, Mr. Hinojosa as well. He suggested that uh, there are three things that um, you know, benefit uh, uh, students academically uh, by diversity. One was fostering innovation um, that broadens the perspectives of the students um, and that it reduces stereotypes. Um, I certainly don't know about that last point, right? One of the arguments on the other side of, of the race preference uh, question um, is that it may reinforce some ugly stereotypes about black and brown people if they're given massive preferences to go to an institution that they're not academically qualified for. Um, so I don't know exactly where that, uh, I, don't, I don't believe Mr. Hinojosa gave a, uh, a citation or reference to where he got that, that suggestion from. Um, but again, you know, I don't think uh, terrible answers to uh, to the question that Justice Thomas asked on several occasions. Um, there were also uh, suggestions that, you know, from the justices themselves, that there are benefits to diversity for a number of different reasons, not least of which that on college campuses, um, these individuals are going to be leaders in our country, and um, you know, if if um, you know, we can make sure that these campuses are diverse. We'll know uh, that our leadership cadre uh, in the future will uh, have diversity as well. Um, that's good for a lot of different reasons. Um, and this gave a sense that um, some of the justices, so Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, who suggested this, um, to, it suggested to me that you know they would be willing uh, not only to preserve the current Grutter. Uh, diversity rationale for uh, higher education, but potentially even expand it uh, to uh, other areas, which I thought was um, was a little curious. Um, There's also a lot of talk about um, race preferences or, or race consciousness being a small factor among, among many uh, in, uh, in admissions decisions. Uh, and so why, sh why should we really, you know, care too much, but it, it was a straight, it created a strange tension when on the other hand, or the other side of the coin, the suggestion is that, well, if we get rid of it, then the sky is going to fall. Um, it was, it was a, a bizarre and kind of interesting tension throughout uh, both the, the UNC and the Harvard 
argument. Um, and then uh, we heard, and actually, I don't think we, we heard it all from Justice Jackson on this point, but um, although we did in, in Merrill oral argument about what originalism um, uh, leads to uh, in terms of the, the 14th Amendment, there was some talk about Title VI as well in the context of originalism. Um, I think at the end of the day, so we got to a point going back and forth on this originalism was in thought uh, that um, the history is mixed here. Uh, largely, the laws that Congress was passing at the time, the 14th Amendment was, uh, was ratified uh, that may have been um, race conscious or seemed race conscious, uh, made more sense then, uh, and they were really remedial. Um, Freedmen's Bureau, for example, was, uh, was referred to uh, in a suggestion was made that well that was remedial and it had it made no racial distinctions uh, which is which is what history bears out in fact um, there were white uh, quote unquote refugees from the south who benefited from provisions uh, uh, within the Freedmen's Bureau. Um, uh, I, I want to make sure I'm right about this particular point. The it was Patrick Strawbridge who was arguing for uh, for SFFA in the UNC case, and he suggested that the best uh, originalist case for the Fourteenth Amendment being colorblind or for the principle uh, that that we cannot make distinctions based on race um, in any context is is the U.S. brief uh, uh, rearrangement brief in Brown. So I, I want to make sure that I mention that. Um, now, really quickly, uh, I, I think generally the Chief Justice, um, who a lot of people um, that I've talked with um, were concerned might um, waver a little bit uh, on this particular difficult issue based on his institutional instincts, um, notwithstanding what he's written in the past on racial distinctions, uh, was quite active. He seemed very friendly to uh, the petitioners. Uh, uh, advocates in this, uh, this this today, and uh, and he he functioned quite frequently um, as a traffic cop um, when things were getting a little feisty or heated, um, and, uh, and and interrupted his colleagues, um, you know, two or three times. Uh, at one point, asking um, Justice Sotomayor to allow uh, one of the advocates to actually answer the questions she asked. Um, very, very interesting, and, and also incredibly interesting was a comment that he made in the UNC argument, which was Asians are discriminated against. He, he said Asians are discriminated against in, uh, in higher education, which I thought was a, quite a definitive statement. Um, Justice Sotomayor, um, along with Justice Kagan, uh, I think we're, we're very, very active, um, uh, suggesting that uh, you know they had not changed their views on whether or not uh, Grutter should stand or fall. In fact, as I suggested, it almost seemed as though they were suggesting the diversity rationale on Grutter should, uh, should expand uh, to other areas of American life, which, which is a curious, curious thing. Um, uh, in fact, just sort of my or uh, I wrote down this quote said, race is part of culture and culture part of race. Uh, I'm not fully sure what she meant by that, but it did suggest to me that she um, would support potentially race consciousness in, in uh, other areas of, of American life. Um, Justice Kagan suggested that uh, you know it's important that we have diverse doctors, uh, diverse judges, uh, and I think made an oblique reference to Justice Kavanaugh when she suggested um, that uh, you know judges should be able to look at the uh, racial diversity of their clerks or or you know all sorts of diversity of their clerks. Um, because I, I, as folks may know, Justice uh, Kavanaugh, I think his first term had only female clerks and has made an, made an effort uh, to have um, a very diverse clerk, um, clerk group at each term. Um, Justice Jackson was really quiet in the Harvard case, she's recused from it, uh, but her comments in the uh, Carolina case were sort of interesting. Again, she didn't go to uh, she didn't talk about originalism, I think, 
hardly are. At least she didn't start the conversation on originalism um, uh, and, and what's required of the 14th Amendment. Um, she made comment about having concerns regarding standing uh, and how the use of race, uh, how race is used in college admissions, um, uh, and, and therefore how you know applicants uh, uh, are, are injured. Um, and another interesting point, which no other justices seem to uh, uh, seem to pick up on or, or to comment on, and that is, um, it seemed as though she thought um, the fact that identifying your race in uh, your application to a university being voluntary helped her case somehow. Um, I don't, I don't understand how it does. I've been thinking about that. I don't understand how that furthers, uh, you know, uh, an affirmative action scheme like the one in Carolina. Um, last two things. Um, uh, Justice Gorsuch um, seemed to be the, uh, the the justice who was most interested in sort of religious affiliation and bringing up the issue that. Um, Harvard excluded Jewish uh, applicants um, uh, historically, and that this looks a lot like uh, maybe that, and and you know pro probing into that question, uh, and then finally, I found that I think the the biggest moment uh, in the five hours of oral argument, and and hopefully Amanda, you didn't lose your connection uh, during this, but if you did, here here, here you go. Um, um, Seth Waxman, a very, very accomplished uh, lawyer, gave, gave away the case in Harvard, I think, um, when he was being pressed pretty hard. And, and quite frankly, I, I think his, um, his entire argument was, was, he was, he struggled the entire time. Um, Seth Waxman gave away the bag when Chief Justice Roberts was, was pushing him pretty hard and, uh, uh, Mr. Waxman replied uh, to a question asking whether or not, basically, if there is a tie uh, academically between two different candidates, whether or not race has been and can be a determinative factor um, in breaking that tie. He said, quote, race can be a determinative factor. That, uh, that, that's, didn't expect that one. Um, uh, the, in the Carolina case, the, uh, North Carolina SG got the same question and, and avoided it. But, uh, Mr. Waxman said it can be a determinative factor. Um, and, and, and just as, as he, as he went on, um, being a very accomplished oboe player might be a determinative factor as well. And in a tie academic resort and the chief justice raised his voice and replying to that uh, suggestion that those things are similar by saying, we did not fight a civil war over oboes. A very interesting exchange indeed. Uh, let's hear from Amanda. Hey, you all, thank you so much for coming. Uh, it's great to be here with you and to talk about, I think, some of the most important cases being heard this decade. Um, so I guess I want to just highlight a few themes. Um, the first is originalism. Uh, uh, Devin is right that Justice Jackson didn't raise originalism, but a number of the justices uh, from all different parts of the bench, uh, raised the question of what did, you know, what was the original intention of the first amendment? Um, and what was, uh, what did people at the time understand it to be? And, uh, you know, there are a number of briefs that argue that there are significant, you know, there's significant legislation that was, um, uh, that we might describe today as affirmative action, right? And I think um, I, I've said this in other panels, but if you think about, you know, what is 40 acres and a mule? 40 acres and a mule sounds a lot like affirmative action to me um, uh, in light of the nation's history of um, not just slavery, but of systemic oppression of Black people. Uh, and a number of those programs were open to all Black people, not just to formerly enslaved people. So they're not, um, uh, you know, remediative, uh, remedial in, in the sort of narrow way that the court has understood to be in other contexts. One of the things I thought was really interesting, I always like listening to Justice Barrett's questions. She asked really smart 
uh, and I think different questions than a number of the other justices. Um, but she uh, said from the bench that that is the case, that the history shows that uh, at the time of the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment was not understood to be colorblind. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and then she asked a smart question um, uh, about what, what sort of what does that mean, right? Does that mean you're not supposed to have strict scrutiny or does it, you know, how should we understand the history to matter? And I guess, um, uh, and then Justice Jackson's point on this, you know, she was the original one who, uh, who had, you know, raised this sort of question of, um, of originalism, the 14th Amendment in the Merrill case about voting rights. Um, she said, you know, it's you know we can we can agree that the history certainly isn't just colorblind, and if that's the case, right? Is there enough history to overcome stare decisis? I thought that was an interesting way to to think about it. Um, I guess the most important thing I'll say um, of the things is I'm really interested to see how whatever majority we see talks about history, right? Because history and tradition were so critical in Dobbs, and um, I think insofar as the court is, you know, a number of, of the justices think of themselves as originalists, I think there's some hard questions here. Uh, or I guess I'll say, my read of the history is, like I said, it, it was very clear around the 14th Amendment that the, the goal of the 14th Amendment was to, um, to make sure that there was a racial equality. And that meant that there's something different between Jim Crow laws or black codes on the one hand and things like, you know, what the Freedmen's Bureau was doing, which was trying to uh, ensure forms of racial equality. Um, okay, so I think the, the original originalism point will be really interesting to see. Uh, and I am not sure how um, different members of the court are gonna come out on that question or if they're gonna decide to dodge it altogether, which they might do. Um, one other argument that I found really interesting was Justice Jackson had a, uh, had a hypo, uh, in which she said, okay, what if you have, um, a student who's from five generations in North Carolina and, uh, it's a white student and they say, my family's been here from before slavery, five generations have gone to UNC and I would, I really honor my family to be able to go to UNC. And another student says, uh, my family's been in North Carolina since, uh, before the civil war. My family was enslaved. They've not had the opportunities to go. My people in my family have not had the opportunities to go to UNC. Uh, and I, it would really honor my family and my history in North Carolina to do that. And she basically, she flipped the argument on its head and she said, under the petitioner's argument, the first guy, the white guy, can get a can have his history give him a bump, whereas the second guy cannot, because it would be understood to be uh, like uh, a plus factor on the basis of race, including the petitioner said any kind of like basis of your family and slavery is considered such a proxy for race uh, that it couldn't be a plus factor in any kind of. Um, uh, 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 university consideration. I thought that was really interesting, uh, uh, an interesting argument, and one that, again, we'll see whether or not the court deals with it. Um, the final thing I'll say is uh, what was really interesting to me was uh, the kind of, I have said before, is depending on how these cases come out, it strikes me that things like Title VII um, and the race-neutral plans are definitely under threat, because if the court were to say, you know, uh, educational, you know, diversity in educational context is not a compelling interest. Uh, they might say, if you adopt a race neutral plan, but with the goal of uh, encouraging racial diversity, that alone violates the constitution. Uh, and I took the oral argument not to be going in that direction whatsoever. And I think that's fascinating because it sounded to me like there are enough justices on the court to protect uh, race neutral plans even if the race neutral plans are adopted in part for the reason of uh, encouraging racial diversity, which I think would mean that things like the top 10% plans, uh, Title VII, that, that would really affect, there's a case coming up now, uh, Thomas Jefferson High School, raising the same question. I think uh, if I'm right, I think that that's a different outcome. It may mean that we get a narrower opinion than I had uh, I had expected and some of the other kind of commentators that has accepted. Um, Oh, wait, one more thing. Okay, one more thing is, I think it's really interesting, too, that the SG put forward a strong argument about national security interests in the military. Um, and 
the justices were interested in that and whether or not, uh, you know, military schools and military um, issues should be treated differently. Uh, to which the SG responded, essentially, ROTC programs are important. They're important not just to us, but also to business uh, in terms of like racial diversity in, in non-military um, academy settings. Uh, but also, uh, she said, basically, for the 25 years question, places move at different paces, right? You have a, a very different history of race in the context of North Carolina. I'm from Atlanta. I can tell you that is, the, is true. Um, and so it may be the case that, you know, some states and some schools, it would be uh, unconstitutional for them to use any any form of uh, race conscious admissions, whereas that we shouldn't think that's the case in other contexts, which is to say the 25 years rule was uh, aspirational. And the problem is not that race conscious uh, admissions hasn't worked, but that our society hasn't become as as less racist as the court uh, had hoped uh, in Grutter. Okay, I'll be quiet. I'm interested in your uh, in your questions. Thank you, Amanda. Um, let me ask a few questions. Well, let me start out with with your last point, um, which is you you said that society is still racist, but isn't that uh, something that would go to a remedial justification for preferences? And and again, the lawyers for the schools disavowed any uh, remedial argument here. No, I think it goes to the question of whether or not the twenty five years is like a is a rule of law, or whether or not right. Instead, we should understand it to remark on the possibility of us getting rid of racial considerations uh, in college admissions. Now, I mean, I thought it was interesting that the Solicitor General, um, you know, pointed to the states in which um, they don't use preferences and, and the fact that those states have maintained diversity for the most part and gave that as an example of the fact that, you know, the the end is in sight. But but those are states not where, you know, all racism has been eliminated, but um, those are states where by law they can't use preferences. So doesn't that sort of make the argument for the other side that the that, that the only way we're really ever going to get rid of the use of explicit race is to just say it's illegal and, you know, force schools to use race natural alternatives? I don't think so. I don't know why. I don't think that follows, at least. Right. I mean, it strikes me that, um, you know, particularly if the court were to uh, take the invitation from the Solicitor General uh, and Seth Waxman, counsel for Harvard, and remand that case and say, you know, narrow tailoring is really narrow tailoring that would encourage schools to go faster right, in the way already that, uh, you know, Grass and Grutter have for a number of schools. So I don't, I don't necessarily think so. I think the real question then again, like I said before, is, is the court then going to uphold or strike down race neutral alternatives that are, you know, that are undertaken with at least some hope of uh, encouragement of racial diversity? And I mean, I agree with your read, by the way, which is that this court is not ready to say that uh, race neutral alternatives are uh, are all off the table. Um, and can you can you live with that? I mean, would a world in which uh, race wasn't used explicitly, but um, uh, but, you know, largely the same effect was accomplished in a race neutral way would, you know, would you be happy with that? So, I, I mean, would I be happy with that? Yes. I think one of the questions, though, is, you know, is that possible in this world and society in which we live, at least right now? And, you know, it was a vision of a number of the schools that it's not. And that's a factual question, right? Like whether or not you could have, a, you know, if you could have Harvard and it still be Harvard and as, you know, competitive and intellectual, et cetera, uh, and still not have any consideration of race and still have it be diverse. I, th I think it's I think that that's a factual question. I mean, you know, were Justice O'Connor correct that there would be no need of this 25 years later? That would be amazing, right? Uh, I just don't think we live in that world. And I also don't think that affirmative action programs um, contribute to 
racial strife or the like, but instead the opposite as a bunch of the uh, filings, I think, demonstrate. Um, Devin, um, are you happy with race neutral alternatives? Um, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that you would say not if they are merely a cover for um, racial balancing, but what if they're, that's partly the goal and the other part of the goal is genuinely to uh, take into account all types of disadvantage? I, I, I certainly would support that. Um, in fact, I think it's perfectly permissible, and I, and I do think that, you know, and hope that we'll move closer to um, what was discussed at oral argument as well, and it's been debated uh, quite a lot, and, and whether or not there are, you know, race-neutral alternatives, like um, like considering factors uh, such as socioeconomic status. Uh, now, I still have concerns, uh, uh, very strong concerns about uh, mismatch, uh, putting students into an environment that they're not prepared for, uh, based on uh, some academically prepared for, based on a factor uh, outside of how they've tested uh, and, and courses they've taken at the high school level, how they've done uh, academically, uh, and the effects, I think, that are negative that flow from that, but small bump here or there because you know a student is from a lower SES uh, bracket uh, to help diversify the campus. Um, uh, you know, a campus such as Harvard, which was um, as, as stated in, in oral argument, not very diverse at all uh, when it comes to those sorts of uh, factors. Thanks, the statistic was something like. 70 or 80 percent uh, of Harvard students uh, come from wealthy families. Um, very few come from come from poor families. Um, I'm not concerned about that. I am concerned when those preferences become very, very large um, and, and lead to that mismatch. Let me ask this to uh, to both of you. Um, I would say there were two justices, um, both Jackson Sotomayor, who um, you know, one got the sense are, are certainly not ready to give up on the explicit use of race. Um, uh, where do you think Kagan stands and what do you think we can uh, draw um, from the fact that she did seem very interested in race neutral alternatives? Either of you. Well, I, I can be very quick about this because I stated um, sort of my thoughts and, and my intro uh, as it pertains to Sotomayor and Kagan on this. Um, I, I, I thought uh, both Justice Sotomayor and Kagan um, were sympathetic to an idea that race should be taken uh, into account and many other aspects of American life. So um, I mean, my, clearly implies that um, I, I think that uh, Justice Kagan would be uh, uh, perfectly happy to see Grutter stand and the explicit use of race and, and college admissions continue. Or all right, let me let me rephrase the question, uh, perhaps for Amanda. Um, I, I, you know, who knows what Kagan wants in her heart? But the fact that she did talk about race-neutral alternatives does that indicate to you, Amanda, that she may realize that the votes are just not there to um, to save um, the the uh, you know explicit use of race? Uh, yeah, I mean, she's real savvy, right? She's a super smart human. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I agree with Devin that she support. she thinks that Greta is correct. Um, I think she's also concerned about stare decisis and legitimacy of the courts. If you see a bunch of her recent public statements, uh, sort of this question of like, how far is the new court going to go? How far, how fast, um, you know, overruling all of affirmative action after doing away with abortion. These are these are big social moves uh, in a very divisive world. Okay, so um, but I think that she may have come into it closer to what I was worried about, which is that the court was going to issue a broad holding that says, you know, no affirmative action whatsoever, and if you even think about race, then that's unconstitutional, right? And that would be the biggest cut, I think, uh, to say there's no, you know, constitutional interest in diversity whatsoever. Uh, I think that maybe what we saw today also has to do with her, you know, talking through with people and maybe trying to move people to a more moderate position. I don't know, but that would be my guess. That would be my guess. Um, yeah, yeah, and follow up to that. Now, uh, thank you for rephrasing the question, also, Kurt. Uh, but I got the sense that Justice Kagan was um, 
uh, much more uh, inclined to be uh, the persuader uh, on the on the left side of the court, uh, as opposed to Justice Sotomayor, who I got the sense was talking more to the American public, it seemed like, uh, than to her colleagues. She was very strong in her positions, um, wasn't as, as interested in uh, uh, race control alternatives, or at least uh, discussing them uh, to the length that Justice Kagan was, um, and, uh, and just uh, struck me as though she, um, you know, what was, was, was not, uh, not, not talking to her colleagues uh, in the same way as, as Justice Kagan. I will say one of the more, to talk about Justice Sotomayor, one of the more striking parts of the argument to me actually came in a colloquy with her um, in which she was asking about, so let me back up and say, the petitioner's uh, counsel argued that you know, for example, if there was a plus factor or any type of additional, you know, consideration given to a person who wrote an essay about how they come from a family of formerly enslaved people, that that would be impermissible because it would be a close a, a close proxy for race and therefore unconstitutional. Uh, I thought that was staggering in a lot of ways, right? Like, what's the purpose of the Fourteenth Amendment? Okay, but um, in the context of the end of slavery, but um, putting that aside, I thought it was interesting how Sotomayor drew out, I can't remember who it was from the SG maybe or somebody else, sort of like the contemporary racial problems in North Carolina that are real. I mean, you all know we've been here for the last five years, right? Think about, you know, the March on Charlottesville and all this sort of stuff. Uh, it, it's it's hard to not admit that there are significant racial issues, uh, particularly in the part of the world that I come from. Uh, and I thought that um, she did a good job of drawing out those contemporary harms uh, and connecting them with the history, with North Carolina's institutional history of, for example, opening UNC to um, to educate uh, the children of of, um, of slave owners. Again, um, though, I, I let me ask Amanda, um, doesn't that get into the remedial interest, though, and perhaps even not just the um, remedial interest that the school might have, but isn't it more a societal discrimination type argument, which so um, I, don't, I don't think so. And I'll, I mean, I think, you know. I, I think that that's a legitimate constitutional interest myself. OK, um, but I think that the the issue goes to this background, what is society, right? It goes to when can we end consideration of race in you know, university uh, admissions because those people will become leaders in our democracy in which we need people, we need to feel that our leaders are representative um, of the public at large, right? I thought that the SG made a very powerful argument about that in terms of military leaders, uh, and the business community has filed a very uh, a terrific brief about, you know, signed by like, you know, every major company, uh, not just the ones that you would expect to say, you know, this is really important to business. Um, so it strikes me as not a question of remedial, it's a question of the fact that the world is not where the petitioner acts like it is, right? If the world was a place in which our country had dealt with systemic racism, right, then just race neutral alternatives would be fantastic, right? Um, but like I said, I, I think if you look around, anyone looks around at the state of the country and discussions on race, right? The storming of the Capitol with like tons of Confederate flags, right? It's not a place that um, that I think resembles in any way uh, the world that the petitioner seems to think it does. And, you know, some of the um, conservative justices had, you know, questions. I don't disagree with you that uh, that uh, the world isn't perhaps what O'Connor had hoped it would be. But um, they were concerned, you know, what if we don't reach that that you know, point of an ideal society, does that mean these preferences will go on forever? And I was a little bit surprised because at least the counsel for the other side pretty much all seemed to agree that if it went on forever, that would have major constitutional problems. So let me let me ask you about that, but let me also ask Devin, do you have any faith that we can continue this for, you know, another 25 years without it going on for, you know, basically for infinity. 
I'll, I'll answer first and, and I'll say uh, um, I have no confidence at all. Um, I think it was pretty clear uh, when pressed time and time again, uh, um, what, what's the end date to this? I think every, almost every justice asked the, uh, uh, the, the advocates that question and there was never a hard and fast uh, answer. Um, I can't remember exactly some of the, the language that was used, um, but uh, it essentially implied that this is something that uh, must go on uh, forever. The, the SG suggested that uh, um, we'd have to evaluate whether, uh, I wish I could remember her terminology, um, there was something like sufficient diversity um, on campuses, but did not further explain what exactly that sufficient diversity would look like and suggested that uh, there, there, this could not be reduced to some numerical percentage um, uh, to determine whether or not we could we could stop the outright use of race and uh, in admissions. Uh, so I no, I have no confidence um, uh, that this would not uh, uh, this would this would not uh, endure indefinitely. Amanda, do you have more confidence? Yeah, and I actually I was sort of impressed, particularly with the SG's answer to that question, which is to say, you know, what's been happening is we we're moving more and more in that direction, and you know, the consideration of race by these schools has has been reduced in part because you know there uh, there have been strides to make the world a uh, sort of a more equitable place. Um, but she also pointed so the the SG pointed to a bunch of things and said, you know, different communities move at different rates on this question. Different different parts of the country have different histories with regard to race, and so already there are places in the country that you know uh, by her lights it would be unconstitutional for uh, schools to consider to explicitly consider race uh, even as part of a holistic review, uh, but that other places it wouldn't be. And then she suggested, you know, a number of different factors of how to think about, uh, and I think some of these are drawn from the from the voting rights context, but she said things like disparities in graduation and attrition rates, right? They can also measure race-related sort of like issues on campus in terms of how much uh, people of different groups feel comfortable speaking. She said, you know, demographics may be uh, relevant, particularly in a context where you see very extreme disparities between different groups. Um, and it meant she used the example of what about uh, female advocates in the Supreme Court? There's like never, I mean, not never, she's the SG, but there are very few uh, female Supreme Court advocates. And she said, you know, if you're looking at the world, it may suggest to you that that's a type of leadership position that's not open to you. Um, and then she also suggested, you know, uh, qualitative analyses of students and their experiences. Um, so I felt like that there was a fair bit of concrete things that she gave, particularly Justice Kavanaugh, to say, here, here are the types of things we would measure to actually decide this question. That's already been met in some places in the country. And the question will be like, you know, when can it be in other places like North Carolina? And that strikes me just as an empirical question. And I'll say, I'm going to be an optimist and say, I really hope, and I really hope within my lifetime that places like North Carolina um, are, you know, have open opportunities and um, forms of, you know, social equality that would mean, in fact, that race neutral alternatives would be great. Uh, Devin, um, your answer implied um, that you don't think we're going to be able to achieve um, at least racial diversity without substantial preferences, certainly, you know, anytime soon. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I won't agree or disagree, but, but let me ask, if that's the reality, could one argue that society sort of wants to live with the fiction that we have now, which is that we're we're achieving diversity, but we're also race is not a determinative factor. Um, in other words, is is it this current state of affairs perhaps a compromise given that diversity can't be achieved without substantial preferences? Well, I think diversity can be achieved. Um, it is achieved in, in many different institutions of, of higher education. It's interesting that Berkeley was used uh, as an example of where uh, diversity was was drained from the campus uh, after uh, Prop 209 uh, was was passed, uh, which outlawed uh, racial uh, classifications in, in higher education. Um, 
the rest of that story is interesting. In fact, enrollment went up among minorities on uh, University of California system campuses. Uh, the GPAs, on average, of those minorities uh, rose as well. Um, um, uh, minorities were uh, more likely to graduate as well in the University of California system. Um, yes, right. Uh, the very, very pinnacle of the University of California system, University uh, of the uh, uh, Berkeley, uh, did go down, but diversity in many other places uh, went up, and those diverse uh, students uh, did much better. Uh, when they were paired with uh, an institution that uh, uh, was was better suited to their to their academic qualifications, um, I think we can do even better at Berkeley too, though, and at all the elite institutions around the country, which otherwise would see a draining of, uh, of minorities. If we uh, put more emphasis on the root causes of those things that cause uh, disparities in economic and many other uh, aspects of, of American life, like better schools uh, in predominantly minority communities um, and a number of other factors that we don't have time or need to go into right now. But, uh, you know, I don't think there's a, you know, keep it the way it is and use explicit race preferences or, um, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, have the, the opposite result as you were suggesting, Kurt, that we kind of just live in this fiction that uh, we're just not going to have the diversity that we need. And, and, you know, I think we can do better than, than both of those things. Uh, if we focus our efforts in the right, the right ways, I think some of the evidence, uh, not only uh, uh, some some of the evidence that was presented uh, in the uh, uh, that was uh, cited or referenced in the oral arguments, uh, like California system, is uh, it's indicative of what can be done. Um, Devin, you you mentioned. Um basically the use of the diversity rationale against Jewish applicants 100 years ago. Several of the justices mentioned it. Um, and um, it's, you know, some would argue that, you know, there's a parallel to how Asian Americans are treated today. Amanda, I'm going to guess that that you don't think it's, it's the same. And, um, you know, tell us why we shouldn't be concerned that uh, the current system is just a fashionable version of what was done to uh, to Jews a hundred years ago. So, um, I so I'm concerned actually uh, that like uh, in systems with a lot of discretion, you sometimes have you know abuses of discretion. So I you know I'm I'm both not surprised by the history of anti-Semitism, um, and I think in general you know, this is like a lot of the context where you see to in employment decisions or police. Uh, you know, a, a lot of discretion can can be um, can be problematic. Uh, what I heard, you know, Seth Waxman say was like th those aren't the facts, and those aren't facts that were found both by the district court and by the um, uh, and affirmed by the First Circuit. And I guess I'll say, and he was, you know, he was like, if those were the facts, that would be different. Uh, so I guess I guess I'll say, you know, if they are doing uh, what you know what they were doing with um, with Jewish Americans. That would be an, uh, you know, with regard to Asian Americans, that would be an atrocity, and they should definitely be held liable. I think the, I think the point on the other side is that's not actually what's happening, as all of the fact finders have found. Um, so, you know, I don't know, but I guess I'll say I, that is a concern for me, um, but one that, you know, at least with regard to the Harvard thing, uh, they say the facts are different, and th this issue isn't even raised in the North Carolina case. Right. This isn't raised in the constitutional case. It's only raised uh, in the statutory case. It, 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 the, the response that I heard from Mr. Waxman um, was, was really, I think, inadequate. Um, he suggested that, you know, today's process um, is not the same as, as the process when when Jewish students were being uh, excluded from Harvard. That it was an aberration that one president instituted uh, character rating as subterfuge uh, to keep uh, Jewish students uh, off of the campus. Um, that's precisely what is happening in Harvard, or, or that's the allegation, uh, that based on a personal rating, which Asian Americans get the lowest score on by far, um, that they're doing the exact same thing uh, to Asian American applicants now uh, through a quote unquote sort of character or personal rating. Uh, when asked why, the, the answer was just, astoundingly muddled. Uh, I don't think there was a clear answer uh, from uh, Mr. Waxman on that point. I don't know if you heard it differently, Ben. 
I thought the SG answered better, but basically that that's not what the, no, I'm, I'm being honest, uh, but that's not, you know, the, that's not what the facts show. And as the district court and court of appeals uh, found, and so if you Supreme Court want to find different facts, then both of them suggested you should remand. And I, you know, that sounds right to me uh, if the question is a factual question. Justice Gorsuch suggested that the Solicitor General's argument undermines Bostock. Do the panelists share that, that view? I, I thought what Gorsuch was saying was just that, um, that uh, one of the counsel were, were trying to say that Title VI, um, Title VI does not define discrimination clearly, whereas Title VII doesn't. But was there more to that point than, uh, than, than I realized? Uh, I asked that to both of you. I don't think I, so. I think you just showed, oh, sorry, you can go. No, I, I, I think I agree, I agree with Kurt here. Um, uh, although I, I would go one step further and say, although I think the Solicitor General is exceedingly sharp, which is very, very good in argument uh, today, um, you know, I think a disingenuous answer came out here, uh, which was essentially um, Title VI discrimination in Title VI is ambiguous, whereas it's not in Title VII. I think that really is just, you know, it's the exact same words, you know, uh, you know, I think that was a way of saying, you know, look, we support race preferences. Uh, that's what we're here to do. Um, but we, uh, uh, we also support SOGI. Um, uh, efforts as well, so we we uh, we like what you did in Bostock. Uh, uh, don't 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 uh, disturb that. Gotcha. And I guess I should have said for anyone in the audience who doesn't know, Bostock was the case that found that sexual uh, orientation and uh, gender identity were covered by Title VII. Um, all right, here's a tough question for you. Wait, can I just say quickly? Sure, I thought, I, so I, I disagree with that, but it doesn't matter why. But um, I will say, I thought what was interesting about that comment was he was staking out a textualist position, at least in the Harvard case, which is you know an interesting one and an interesting one about the relationship between uh, Title VI and the Constitution. And he seemed to be interested in breaking their meaning. And I think that you know that's a larger question. But I didn't hear other people kind of like taking up the textualist bandwagon. I it seemed uh, that didn't seem to be the sort of like the the center of the conversation. Okay, sorry. Next. Uh, okay. Go ahead. I was going to say, unfortunately, I think I think we talk more about the text of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, we get closer to a reading that I think is right in a colorblind reading. But uh, there, there's no talk about that. It's just to talk about the historical record, which uh, I think we really only get to if the words of the law are ambiguous, um, which no one brought up, which I was uh, I was sad. Um, all right, David. Um, you make the point that affirmative action has the potential to reinforce racial stereotypes by admitting black and brown students to programs for which they are not qualified. On what basis do you assume, as your point necessitates, that affirmative action tips the balance of admissions such that race supersedes qualifications? And on what basis do you assume, assume that students admitted via affirmative action cannot be both diverse and qualified? I don't think I'm assuming that uh, students who are admitted on the basis of, of affirmative action or race preferences um, are not qualified. I mean, the evidence suggests that, um, you know, and logic suggests that race preferences would not would be unnecessary if students uh, of certain racial backgrounds are given preferences um, uh, were academically qualified. There, there would be no need for the bump, for the tip, right? Uh, but I think, uh, you know, the evidence over the course of uh, 20 years have have borne out the case that um, you know students uh, you know are placed into a position where again you know some of them do do very well notwithstanding what their academic qualifications were at the time of admission um, you know admitted uh, with lower academic uh, qualifications or credentials than than others. Also, I'll just say one additional thing about that: the lawyer for Harvard asked uh, was asked essentially if there is a tie. Based on academic credentials, you know, can race be a determinative factor, or has it been a determinative factor? Um, will it be a determinative factor? Can it be? He said yes. He, he said it himself. I don't have to tell you. Um, and Amanda, 
there was a lot of debate over whether you know race is ever a determinative factor or just one of many factors. And I guess let me ask you, um, would it ever be okay if you were using race against minorities, but in a non-determinative way? I mean, that's the suggestion of the question, right? That's used, being used against white people and against Asian people. Um, so I so I thought that question was interesting, but kind of for a different reason, which is, you know, in the context of it was like a pushback against this idea that education is a zero sum game, right? That actually, you know, what you know UNC is trying to do is get a group of the you know, sort of like most well-roundedly qualified people. Uh, and part of that has to do with considerations of your background, including race, um, but also other things such that, you know, it isn't, it can't be compared to a race, right? And in such context, right? Like, how do you know that you would have gotten into Harvard or UNC, right? In this context where we're applying all these things and doesn't that raise standing issues? And I, th I think that there's, uh, I think that there's something compelling in that. I do not think that the court is going to pick up on it. Um, but I do think that that um, is a, came out as a stronger argument at, at oral argument than I had expected. Well, Devin, I'm going to force you and Amanda to answer one last question because I think because I think it's a good uh, closing question. Could the court apply the 25 year sunset clause by ending uh, race-based admissions for the class of 2028. Um, or, you know, let me let me uh, uh, say the class that's entering in 2028. That would be more appropriate because admissions is applied uh, when you enter, not when you graduate. But um, do you think that's a possible solution? And do you think that's something the court might do? And again, that's directed at both of you. Yes, yes, I do think that's something that the court could do. I think it's highly unlikely, um, although that would be better than suggesting that you know race preferences um, uh, are are now prohibited and schools you know institute this with all deliberate speed. Um, okay, so you would prefer that it uh, not wait five years. Well, cer certainly, um, but that's preferable to. Um, you know, that's preferable to to some of its earlier uh, precedents suggesting, you know, on race issues, uh, suggesting, for example, in Brown, that uh, schools should desegregate with all deliberate speed, which uh, the schools uh, with race preferences, I suspect, would, would never do it, uh, kind of like the, the uh, at, at, you know, in, in, after Brown, um, uh, or take a very, very long time to, to actually implement their decision. And Amanda, um, what do you think? Could you live with, um, I guess that'd really be six years from now, 2028, or do you think that's just near, not nearly enough time? I don't think they're going to do it regardless. You know, I think it's, I think it's talking about the 25 year thing is a way of getting at the question of, you know, when will this end and on what basis, right? Is this, uh, you know, are, do we have to wait until society becomes equitable? And might that be a goal that we can't reach? And you had different, uh, you know, folks taking different positions, more or less optimistic. But I don't, I don't think that they're going to take that approach. I think, um, I, you know, I could be wrong, but I suspect we're going to have kind of like a, a more moderate uh, opinion than maybe Devin wants, um, uh, but one that again sort of uh, says, you know, explicit use of race is unconstitutional, but uh, it's okay to consider race as one factor in devising an admission scheme. Uh, in, you know, uh, one with an eye to diversity is going to be okay. Great, that's a good uh, note to end on. I thought it was an excellent debate, and uh, of course, having great speakers. Uh, helped a lot. So thank you so much to the speakers and thank you to the audience for tuning in. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot slash multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 